Ryan Stanton here with ASEP Frontline, joined today by Dr. Laura Janik uh, from Cambridge Health Alliance out of Cambridge, Massachusetts. And we're going to talk about an important topic that um, has not only I've heard from around the country, a lot of discussions on various social media sites and also within uh, ASEP uh, message boards and such, but also uh, we dealt with this in our emergency department last week, and that is the COVID uh, pandemic and the impact on the homeless population. And really more importantly, one of the more important things is how do we help manage that population that tends to, um, that tends to spend time in shelters and places where there's gatherings with the potential to spread to other folks, especially very, very sensitive and vulnerable populations. So Dr. Janik, thanks for joining us here on ASAP Frontline. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's give us an idea, uh, a little breakdown of, of uh, how you got into this, the interest and then the problem that we're facing here. Well, so I've uh, spent a lot of my time looking at social medicine um, writ large. And so I've, I've done a lot of work with immigration um, and immigrant rights uh, in the Boston area, um, but also just by nature of my clinical work at the Cambridge Health Alliance and um, by trying to focus my work on the most underserved populations. Um, the homeless patients that we see are certainly one of my primary interests. This is, uh, and, if, um, and if you want, we actually got into the social determinants of health and some of the social EM-related uh, issues as well when we recorded at ASAP uh, 19 in Denver, which seems so long ago, uh, released a podcast back at the beginning of the year in January. It's called, Did You Consider Patient Care from a Social EM Perspective? Um, we've, got a couple, um, we've got a couple on there for that. So if you're interested in uh, more of the uh, social EM discussion, um, you can check that podcast out as well. But in this case, we're really seeing how this has impacted, the COVID has impacted the homeless population and a consideration that we have to have when uh, somebody that is uh, homeless or lives in a group type setting and uh, comes in with uh, potential symptoms as a person under investigation or whatnot um, mm-hmm. in, in a disposition plan. What are the unique challenges we're going to face with the homeless population with regard to uh, COVID-19? Um, well, I think there's a lot of different aspects of the, the issues with the homeless population. I mean, the first is just clinically speaking, um, a lot of people, particularly those who are chronically experiencing homelessness, have a lot of comorbidities. Um, a lot of them have substance use issues. Uh, a lot of them have COPD, diabetes, a lot of their chronic health issues are poorly controlled because they have a harder time accessing primary health care and, um, and good medi- you know, medications to manage their health conditions. Um, so sort of at baseline, um, their bodies are a lot more weathered. They've got a lot more underlying health problems. I think in addition to that, a lot of them also have behavioral health issues. Um, and so their ability to interact with the health system um, in a way that allows them to to access care and then follow up on their care is also often severely limited. So at baseline, if somebody gets sick with COVID um, who's experiencing homelessness because of all those other comorbidities, um, they're at a lot higher risk of getting severe illness from the virus. One thing that we're seeing in our challenge that we faced uh, when we uh, last week was uh, some homeless and uh, they came in, felt like they may be, uh, they may have COVID, pretty pretty classic symptoms of fever, cough, and um, all the and fatigue, all the good stuff. I mean, all mm-hmm. the if there was a typical version of, of COVID, which there doesn't appear to be, this one does seem to be that. 
What um, are the big challenges when we're dispositioning the patient? Because this person definitely didn't meet criteria for admission to the hospital, was a normal SATs, functioning fine, just had you know symptoms. But then the plan for disposition um, and asking where this person would go, you know, there was it was no plate, you know, living out living out in uh, on the street somewhere, but tended to sleep in uh, the, some of the shelters. And how do we address some of these ideas of disposition plans for patients that they're either going out to the street, you know, living out uh, in in the elements, or going to a uh, going into a shelter situation where they're going to be in close proximity with with other people and potentially expose them as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think one of the biggest concerns with the homeless population is that when one of them gets the virus, they're an epidemiological nightmare because if they're, it's very hard for them to socially distance, and the, sometimes the only safe shelters that they have. Um, are in close proximity to a lot of other people. So I would say, you know, what we're doing um, in our system and what we have done is that if you've got no other alternative place to put them, then it can really just be what we call a social admit, right? Sometimes the person needs to come into the hospital, not because of their medical needs, but because of their social needs. And we have more resources within our hospital system that can potentially find a better shelter option for that person where they can be maintain social distance and quarantine, um, but we may not be able to have that arranged necessarily immediately from the emergency room. But I also think that this is an opportunity for our health systems um, and our departments to think broader um, and think outside just our clinical setting to say, what do we need to do on a societal level um, to, to create opportunities for these folks to be safe um, when they're getting sick and to, and to protect the rest of the population as well. Uh, in Cambridge, um, they've done a really amazing job of just starting to set up um, a building that I think had previously been a hospital, um, you know, decades ago, and they're sort of have to do a lot of revamping on it. But the plan is to have it be a place for the homeless population to go with separate sections for COVID negative people, um, COVID positive people that need to be isolated, and as well as um, people under quarantine who are persons under investigation. And so basically setting up a little mini hospital specifically for the homeless population. If you can set up something like that in your community, it's, a, it's politically complicated and it's logistically difficult and it's expensive. But oftentimes I would say the, the long-term savings, both in terms of health as well as finances, is probably astronomical compared to the cost of getting it set up. Um, that's the sort of thing we need to be thinking about. And I think a lot of, of homeless healthcare organizations are trying to work on that in their communities around the country. We've been seeing a fair amount uh, locally of attempts to in, improve the distancing uh, separation within um, within the healthcare. I mean, within the uh, shelters and areas like that. You know, decreasing the density within these areas, taking on new spaces. How is that playing out in other areas around the country as a, as an option or a opportunity? And then, what are some of the limitations of that as well? of trying to get folks to, or, or these the shelters to uh, make more space and to get more space between uh, their residents? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it really depends on the specific logistical details of the shelters that you're talking about, um, as well as a lot of sort of other circumstances. So in part of the countries where um, the weather's already gotten a little bit warmer, um, it may be a lot easier to establish tents outside, um, which you can set up heaters for, but it's it's hard to have those be adequately heated in the dead of winter, for example. Um, but you could set up, you know, 
temporary um, shelters like tents um, to create more space um, as well as to, to sort of do that separating between COVID positive, COVID persons under investigation and COVID negative asymptomatic people. Um, I think there's also people are looking at using different types of facilities beyond just the shelters that we currently have. So reaching out to community centers, dormitories that are now empty of university students, hotels, um, places of worship, uh, and sort of looking at, at those buildings and seeing if, um, if they can create partnerships with those kinds of organizations. Um, a lot of that is just like logistically complicated. It depends on how the ventilation system works. And, and again, it's, it's difficult to pull off that anywhere. Um, but that's the sort of creative uh, ideas that people are trying to think about to create more space um, within the shelter system. I think with our particular uh, person, um, we engaged with our community paramedicine program. Uh, there's been a lot of relationships with some of the community folks and uh, have just uh, developed a respite care program where it's that transition from patients who may have been in the hospital or elsewhere that, that are not quite ready to go back into the shelter setting again. Uh, but instead of you know, being in the hospital, using that as a way to get them into a hotel where they're isolated on their own, uh, food and, and clothing is delivered and everything to them uh, right there in that setting. Um, and, and I think that worked out well, but that's not always an option ever, at every place where we go. And you've all already mentioned some of the potential compliance issues, especially with the behavioral health components uh, to many of these patients um, that, that could complicate uh, things as well. Are there any when it comes to this situation, and it could even boil it down to other folks as well, not, not even just homeless, but, you know, there is, there is folks that, are, that either don't understand the issues going on, the risks, or don't have the, um, uh, the, the capacity to kind of sort out that risk. Um, are there things that we can do if there's somebody that we know or we see um, that's not a threat to themselves per se, um, in terms of the traditional suicidal ideation, anything like that, uh, but are to the point we're concerned that they don't have that ability to understand the potential risk of spreading COVID and maybe going out and getting in these situations, getting in small groups or, or, or getting in groups in areas like that and potentially spreading. Is there things we can do to these patients uh, that, that don't meet criteria for admission, don't meet criteria for uh, being uh, committed to a behavioral health facility, but we still think they don't have the capacity to understand the risk of the virus that they're dealing with? That's a really good question. I, I mean, I think, you know, if you start from a place of, of compassion and, and trying to understand where that person is coming from, I mean, a lot of times um, people experiencing homelessness, for example, don't want to be in a traditional shelter system because they've experienced so much trauma in the shelters, um, or or they've got, you know, difficult relationships with other homeless people that they want they're trying to avoid, for example. Um, and so having a having a bit of an attitude of a sort of trauma informed care, and being understanding that that people experiencing homelessness are almost universally quite traumatized, um, and trying to uh, frame it as a way of helping them be safe and care for themselves and have the things that they need. Oftentimes it's a lot easier to, um, work with that person and coming up with a plan for um, their safety as well as, as community safety. And I really think that like, if it ultimately comes down to this person's either going to go and, um, be in a shelter and be coughing all night and, and cause great community harm, 
versus admit them to the hospital for a couple of days so you can find a better plan for them. I really think that the latter option is probably in the long run the better thing to do, both for that patient as for the and for the community. Um, but there are, I mean, there's a lot of larger systemic things that that we can also be thinking about. In Massachusetts, for example, there's already, um, like you were talking about with your patient, there's already a system set up for helping get um, people even temporary housing and hotels for minors. So in Massachusetts, there's a right to shelter for families experiencing homelessness. So if you've got somebody in your family that's under the age of 21, you can um, go to the Department for Housing and um, kind of get emergency shelter in a hotel. So these these mechanisms exist in a lot of places. Um, it's just a matter of sort of being creative about how to utilize them. And and I think the the epidemic is is for we're seeing it's really illustrating a lot of the vulnerabilities of our society. Um, and it's making us think about how do we, how do we think creatively about using the tools that we have to, to really addressing those vulnerabilities and doing the right thing by everybody. The key is really knowing what community and area resources you may have available. Now, of course, some of you out there that are in very rural settings, that may be really challenging. Um, because there may not be that critical mass that you've gotten these programs uh, established. But there are organizations within the area. And uh, for our situation, uh, the greatest gift that's ever happened to emergency medicine since the, uh, since the laryngoscope uh, has been the addition of, of social work and, and case managers. And our hospital, about a year, year and a half ago, added a case manager social worker to the emergency department. And instead of us, as physicians, we're not really good because we, at this because we don't necessarily know all the resources that are out there. Our time is being pulled. We're having to see more patients. Um, nurses, very similar situation. So you have to have somebody who they are attuned to the community resources, the laws, the, the things that are available to assist in those type situations. And we were able to get the social worker to come down and make arrangements for this person to get into the respite care program. Um, so if you've got a... And, and especially now that we're seeing some areas where the volumes have, have dropped down, we don't have as much need for at, at the point for discharge coordinators because of many elective surgeries being canceled and, and things like that. It may be the opportunity to repurpose some folks from the inpatient setting to the emergency department if you don't have one there to help um, coordinate some of these cases. If you've got a, a certain number, I'm sure some people are going to have are dealing with this on a grand scale. I mean, I, I used to work at a uh, basically inner city by a type hospital that a lot of the population was homeless and uh, of limited means living in group settings, recovery settings, things like that. Um, and first is the setting where I am now where it's not as often, but of course, as you see, we, we've dealt with it there too. Uh, so working with your particular setting to understand what you have, the resources, working with social work. If you don't have one in-house, maybe connections with uh, community-based to assist because people are looking for things and ways to assist uh, out there and uh, this is, this gives them a great opportunity and it's something that I don't know that anybody really uh, thought about. I mean we heard about all kinds of data and information coming out of China and coming out of Europe and, and other areas and it wasn't really until we got to the United States that we, we started hearing and it's not that it didn't happen anywhere else, it's just it didn't make news um, with dealing with the homeless population with COVID. Um, and the, the risks and the challenges of dealing with those patients because one thing that we're seeing, uh, Dr. Janik, is, the, is like the behavioral health facilities, those that do have significant behavioral health and do need to have 
a stabilization in the behavioral health facilities. Those facilities are refusing to take them because of that, or those that would normally be, go straight in there being sent to the ER because they reported a cough uh, or fever or chills. Well, if you've been outside, you know, or you've been um, out in the elements, almost everybody there at some point experiences chills um, just because of the external conditions, and they're immediately sent to the emergency department or refusing to take them back. Um, uh, once once we've seen them in the emergency department. Uh, and so I think it's a lot broader consideration uh, of just then just being homeless with the other opportunities and limitations that we have. Are you guys seeing similar type things uh, in your communities up there where you end up with folks um, that uh, are homeless or limited means and, and getting them somewhere else is very difficult because of places uh, demonstrating that COVID fear? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would also just add to your sort of list of resources, along with um, social workers and uh, case managers, I would also um, put a plug in for the local um, healthcare for the homeless organizations. Most major cities, I think, have an organization like that who really focus on uh, homeless healthcare. And um, so knowing who those are, if you've got that in your local um, area, uh, is really helpful because these are folks who uh, whose primary job is figuring out how to deliver health care um, to unsheltered people. Um, and so having a good connection with them uh, is really important. Um, as for the behavioral health question, yeah, we're absolutely seeing that. We have a, a very high volume of behavioral health patients at the Cambridge Health Alliance um, because we have large psychiatric floors um, in normal times and and a, a lot of um primary psychiatric care to the to the local community. Um, and so there's definitely been cases of people who were either getting tested for COVID before their acute psychiatric emergency, or um, there was some resistance from a behavioral health facility. Um, and then they ended up boarding in the ED for days until their COVID test came back. Um, and so a lot of this really is, you know, it's understandable that a behavioral health um, facility would want to try and avoid having any COVID positive patients go into their facility. Cause again, it's, you know, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of group work. There's a lot of community mingling. It's really hard to do social distancing there. Um, and then when you're also considering what the therapeutic uh, model is in a lot of these places, it can, it kind of runs counter to what they're trying to do to make everybody be socially distanced from each other. Um, so it's kind of an understandable thing. It's, it's the sort of thing that we need to sort of work with those facilities on to figure out what are they capable of doing if they had somebody with a medical illness um, and what are they not capable of doing? Oftentimes, traditionally, our role in the emergency department is to do medical clearance, right? Um, so um, it's not, you know, even before the pandemic, um, if somebody had a medical issue that was that needed further care in order for a person to be stable enough to go to one of these psychiatric facilities, um, then we wouldn't be able to send them there anyway. So sort of keeping that in mind about what people are capable of. Um, and then, you know, talking to our psychiatric colleagues about what can we do on an outpatient setting? What can we do within the context of maybe a medical admission with strong psychiatric consultation? Is there anything where we can actually make this work um, for somebody who's got overlying psychiatric emergency and, um, and COVID-19. So let's, uh, bring it, uh, back home here. So we've got doctors and PAs and NPs and nurses listening as they, uh, drive into work, um, you know, heading to the front lines of the, the COVID battlefield. And, um, they're wondering how they're going to manage those things. So Dr. Janet, give, 
give these frontline healthcare professionals the tips they need as they head into work today on helping manage the homeless population in a COVID pandemic? Uh, I think that the first step is is with anything always, you know, if you're doing the right thing for the patient, that's the that should be your north star. That should be the thing that's guiding you. Um, and you know, trying to think epidemiologically, we're trying to think about the good of the community as well, and balance that with the patient in front of you. Um, but you know, follow your gut. If there's something going on and it and it makes you uncomfortable, or if you're worried about a person's ultimate safety around something, um, you should listen to that and and sort of think critically about what to do um, for your patient. But I would say know who your resources are. If you have case managers or social workers in your department. And if you don't have them in the department, you should know if you have them in the hospital and how to reach those people. Um, So a lot of hospitals don't have the resources to have case managers or social workers in the ED. But if you have them on the floors, um, you know, your department should be um, talking to the rest of the hospital to see how can we utilize the case managers that are there physically um, and and use some of their expertise to help us make decisions about uh, disposition planning, for example. I would, um, you know, look around and, and know who your local community resources are, who are your homeless healthcare organizations, where are your shelters and what are their phone numbers, um, and, uh, and sort of at least having a sort of broad knowledge of what that, what that community resource um, looks like. Uh, and then, um, yeah, and then just whenever you have questions or you're or you're not sure, um, not being afraid to ask your colleagues and asking for um, other ideas, because oftentimes when we put our heads together, I think we can come up with better solutions that we wouldn't have come up with ourselves. Talking with Dr. Laura Janik, um, and uh, talking about the how the COVID is impacting um, one of our more sensitive populations, that being the homeless population or those living. Uh, in group settings, uh, things like that. Uh, how can folks get in touch with you, uh, email, social media, otherwise, uh, if they have more questions uh, or would like to pick your brain a little bit more regarding this topic? Um, sure, you could uh, tweet me at L-J-A-N-N-E-C-K at Ljanik, um, or you could email me at lmjanik at challiance.org. All right. More topics. We're trying to bring you as much information about uh, the COVID uh, pandemic as possible, helping you navigate through this uh, challenging time. Definitely not what we were planning in terms of episodes from uh, when we were starting to plan things out at uh, ASAP 19 in terms of looking in the future that uh, most of March March and, and April would be dedicated to a single topic. Uh, revolving around that and especially that being that topic being a pandemic but um, we're going to continue to bring you these episodes as we have topics and things that you need to learn and hear about if you have anything in particular that you have questions or a topic that you'd like to discuss or hear somebody discuss make sure you reach out to us and let us know we're putting these things together um, as we hear from our uh, members and doctors and folks out there as we face this pandemic. And as, uh, as usual, uh, everybody stay safe, take care of yourself, take care of your families. And in the words of the uh, governor of the Commonwealth of Kentucky, uh, we'll get through this. And um, 
Uh, he's our little Mr. Rogers, and, and so if you need something to help calm you uh, during that, every day at 5 o'clock you can get the update from the governor of Kentucky who's, who's going to tell you when he starts off that we're all going to get through this together. So um, with that in mind, you can contact me at youreverydaymedicine@gmail.com, youreverydaymedicine@gmail.com, or at everydaymed on Twitter. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASAP Frontline.